The name of this message, or uh, title rather for this message, is, uh, Is It Me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? We're all, or at least I trust we are all, familiar with the question the disciples of Jesus started to ask when Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. They were all gathered at the table partaking of what would be the last time Jesus would dine with them before he was crucified. To get the right perspective regarding this event, let's look at the book of Mark in chapter 14, verses 23 through 26, to see the very words of Jesus to the disciples. And we start in Mark 14, 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, let me repeat what it was he told them. He said, go into the city, and there's going to be a man walking towards you with a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes, you go in also. And say to the master, where is the, uh, where is the place, the guest room for the teacher to gather with us? And he's going to show you a great, a large upper room. Now, if somebody came and told us something today about, I want you to go over to Target. And as you walk in, someone's going to meet you there. And that person is going to lead you over to a big sale that's in the back. You go buy all the cereals that you need to bring over to the food pantry at Calvary Chapel. And you would be amazed if someone did that, wouldn't you? Now, he didn't know anything about it, but he did know everything about it. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And the disciples followed his word. And it says, so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, do this, and this is going to happen. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said to them, and this seems, appears to have come from out of nowhere, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. It just came out, and they're eating, and they wonder, what do you mean one of us is going to betray you? What's going on? Where did this come from? One of you is going to betray me. How long have they been with him? Almost three and a half years. And all of a sudden, one of them 
is going to betray him? After all that they had seen, that they had heard, after all he had done, he had taught them, one of them was going to betray him? And they began to be sorrowful and to say to, one, to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. In other words, it's one of you. And you're eating with me and you're going to betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been better or good for that man if he had never been born. That's how bad it's going to be for that person that betrays or would betray the Lord. Let's do a little what-if scenario. Uh, before we proceed. What if you were sitting at the table eating with the Lord and he says those words to the whole attendance? Everyone at the banquet could be implicated in that accusation. One of you, he didn't mention names, he didn't point the finger, he didn't say which one, he just said one of you. Automatically, they all started asking, is it me? How, could they, how would you feel if that question were posed and you are one of the twelve? Might you be the one that would carry the burden of guilt that Judas Iscariot carried that day? Might you be the Judas in that group if he asked or said, one of you is going to betray me? Remember that they all started asking, is it I, Lord? They all started asking. They didn't know whether things might develop that would cause them to betray their master. And so the question was well justified. Could it possibly be me, Lord? They asked. In today's society, we see that various groups with special agendas have been able to wrest great influence in the country so that very few people are willing to go against them for fear of retribution, ridicule, or worse. They might say, I have an important position to protect, and therefore I must not jeopardize it by making waves. I can't, I can't be the subject of ridicule. I can't be put down. I can't be ostracized by causing people to accuse me of bigotry or of homophobia or claustrophobia for that matter or one of the innumerable phobias that are used as weapons by those with specific agendas. The question the disciples asked had a much different connotation then than the mealy-mouthed submission of today's homo sapien. That's just another way of saying today's man or woman. A homo sapien is us. That's the scientific terminology, I guess, for man or woman. To the disciples, a betrayal of the Lord would have been unthinkable. 
And yet here they were hearing their Lord telling them that one of them was about to become a traitor. Oy vey. To get a better idea of the magnitude of the significance of such an accusation, let's see what it was that they were witnessing as they accompanied the Lord on his travels around the different places where he preached. The story begins with the disciples first saw Jesus turn the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Let's see what they were told happened there. And that is in John chapter 2, verse 1. We start there. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So, apparently, the wedding party were friends or were well known to Mary, the mother of Jesus, where she was invited. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus was also invited, but he already had disciples at that time and yet had not yet performed any of his miracles. He hadn't started the ministry and already had disciples. It's telling us clearly right here. Jesus and his disciples were invited. So they were well known already and came to this wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They're out of wine. They're dry. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to start performing miracles. What does their running out of running out of wine and you're coming to me? Why? Might we think that Mary already knew what a special person Jesus was? Hadn't an angel announced that she would give birth to the Savior? Hadn't the angel told her? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will give birth to Jesus. You're going to call him Jesus. So she knew he was a special person from his birth and before his birth. So now she comes and tells him they're out of wine as if do something. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Six times 30 is 180. That's how much wine could possibly be generated. That's why they're giving us these numbers here. There were six pots, and they each could contain from 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim, to the very top. Each one was filled with water. The servants did that. 
And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took some and took it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants did because they're the ones that filled the pots with water and they're the ones that drew out the wine and took it to him. So Jesus never touched the pots. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, what he means is when they are drunk, then the inferior, then you serve ripple. You have kept the good wine until now. The Chardonnay, wow. The Cavassier, wow. You're serving the best stuff at the end. Usually, the ripple is what comes at the end and the good stuff at the beginning when people still have a taste and know what's going on. The begin, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What were they walking around with him not believing just out of curiosity or had he promised them money or benefits or something? Why, were, why did he have disciples if they didn't believe in him? They already must have known this is somebody special. I'm going to see where this goes. We're going to see what it is that comes about out of this following this person. But when they saw this miracle, they believed in him. We're being told here. His disciples, but also the servants that saw the miracle had to believe because they saw what happened. How many times have we seen a so-called magician pick a rabbit out of a hat and we have marveled at the trick as if there, we were not aware that it was all a sham? We see him take it out. Wow, how did he do that? Did we really think that he pulled the rabbit out of the hat? Or was it just the fact that we didn't see how he did it? We couldn't see the trick, how it happened, but we saw the end result, which was there's a rabbit coming out of that hat. How did that happen? The disciples, however, saw Jesus only give the command to fill the pots with water, and then they were the ones who drew the water from the pots to take to the master of the wedding, who then verified that it was indeed real wine that had been drawn on the pots and not water. The Bible says that the disciples then believed in him. They had not been with him for very long, but they were already seeing the power that Jesus had. Do you remember the first time you believed in him? Do you remember that? How did you feel? Were you convinced that he could cleanse you of sin? Were you absolutely sure that he could cleanse you of iniquity? 
Were you aware that believing in him assured you of a place in heaven? You know, when Jesus was telling the disciples, uh, uh, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go then to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Believers. He was speaking with disciples. He was speaking with those that had been following him all this time. He was speaking with those that would be taken with him when it was their turn to go to heaven. And he says, where I am there, you're going to be also. I'm going to prepare a place. What might the disciples have expected to receive by following him when they were still disciples? Were they going to follow him for the benefits or out of love for him when he had not yet shown his true love by dying on the cross? These are all things that we must consider in order to get the feeling they must have had when they decided to follow him. We're going to follow this man. He's got power. He's special. He's not just another one like us. They were constantly in awe of him. There's more to show how they came to feel a deep attachment to him when they were wondering which of them might betray Jesus. Remember that they were with him for more than three and a half years, and they heard and saw many things that Jesus said and did. There are many references in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that mention the multitudes, multitudes and crowds that followed Jesus wherever he went. After Herod had John the Baptist killed, the disciples came to him, John's disciples, and we will see here what happened. Mark 6, 26 through 56, it's a long, it's a long uh, passage, but there's a point here that we need to make. So Mark 6, and the king was exceedingly sorry. We're talking about Herod after Salome, his stepdaughter, had danced for him. He'd had a couple of bottles, probably, because what he did was he told her, whatever you ask, up to half of my kingdom, up to half of my kingdom you can have. Just ask what it is you would like. Because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse what she asked for. And it was the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother, who, by the way, had an axe to grind against John. No pun intended. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. 
Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. You may recall that when John the Baptist was out there baptizing people, the Bible tells us they were coming out of all Judea, all the cities around from Jerusalem and all of the other smaller towns and cities to hear him preach, to hear him talk, and to be baptized. So the apostles, the people that were with him, were busy. And it says here they were coming and going all the time, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves, as Jesus told them to do. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. All the cities, multiple, plural. Not one city, not one town. Cities. There was a lot of people out there. They arrived before them and came together to him. So by the time he got there, he was trying to get away so that they could rest a while. There's the multitude of people waiting for him already. And Jesus said when he came out, rather Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. They were just standing around. They didn't know what to expect, but they were there. They were expectant, but they didn't know what to expect. They were waiting for him and something to happen. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. We're alone here. There's nothing much around here, and it's late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. Now again, let's fast forward. You're one of the twelve. You're with him. And he turns to you when you say, send them away, Lord, so that they can go get something to eat. They're, they must be hungry by now. And he turns to you and he says, you feed them. And you look back at the multitude. That's a lot of people out there. It's a multitude. It's not a few. You know, I can feed a few I think I've got enough for a few. But that's a multitude. That's a huge crowd. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? The something here is in italics, which means it was inferred something to eat, at least something to eat. 200 denarii. A denarii was a day's wages for a worker, for a laborer. So he's saying 200 days of work 
Should we go out and buy bread to give them something? Because even that was not going to be enough to feed that whole multitude. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five, five loaves of bread and two fish. I know that there's a couple of guys here that could take care of that by themselves. I'm not going to mention names or point any fingers, but I know that we could take care of that, polish off a little lunch. Pastor Charlie always calls it a little boy's lunch. What, what the Lord found they had. A little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. This was a big group. I'm trying to make the point that there were a lot of people there. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. You know, what's it going to break? Tiny little pieces to, to make it go around for the thousands of people, as it turned out, that there were. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish when everybody had eaten to their fill. He says they all ate and was were filled in verse 42. They all ate. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away and when he sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, do you get the scenario there? A multitude of people, they had come over to meet him. Remember, they'd been on the other side of, this, of the Galilee. And they ran over to where he was going to go to meet him, not knowing what was going to happen. But they knew when he's around, something happens. Something happens. And then he winds up feeding them all. The estimate is about 5,000 men were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. And they were not Moby Dick. They were fish, small fish. You didn't find big fishes like that in the Sea of Galilee. Now, when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. Except that, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. 
But they didn't cry out, hey, Jesus, over here. We're over here in the boat. That's not the cry out they did. Because the next verse says, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Shut up. Settle down. Calm down. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Okay, so now they changed from fear to just amazement, to awe. Because he came into the boat, and the wind was calm. The seas were calm. For they had not understood about the loaves, the multiplication of food, the power that Jesus had to do that. They didn't understand that, much less the wind being calmed, because their heart was hardened. How about us? When we're told that Jesus loves us, do we understand that fully? Do we understand why he would love us? Are we so great? Are we so good that he can't help but love us? I mean, who wouldn't, right? Look at Who wouldn't? They were just amazed that God would love them. Are we amazed? Are we perplexed by the, the very fact that we are told that if we believe in Jesus, that we can have salvation? that he will release us from the burden of sin and iniquity if we confess our sins and repent and ask him for forgiveness? Are we sure that can happen? Are we sold completely on that premise? When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat immediately, the people recognized him again. He can't get away from them. Ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. He's over there. Take your brother. Take your cousin. Take your uncle. Take your friend, whoever. Take him over there to be healed. Whenever he entered into villages, cities, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Were made well. Are we starting to see why the disciples were disturbed by Jesus' accusation that one of them would betray him. There are many other times in the Bible where it tells us that the crowds followed him wherever he went. To be sure, some followed out of curiosity or because they wanted to be fed once, uh, once they had seen what he did with the 5,000. Hey, we can eat here without having to buy anything he can feed us. Let's go listen to him. Let's go follow him. Let's go find him. Some would say that. But the majority, we must conclude, 
followed because they were hearing the gospel and their hearts had been opened to receive it. Remember, many of the people that followed and came to see and hear Jesus were poor or of the lower level than all of the rich people and the officials and the kings and all of those people who had immense wealth. Many, many, many were not wealthy. And so a deal like this, feeding 5,000 free, was really something. There was an article I read some time ago in which certain skeptics had stated that the crowds that followed Jesus could not have been as big as most believers think they are because the numbers seemed exaggerated given the size of the nation at that time. Well, if we recall when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there were thousands and thousands of people killed that the blood ran down the streets. You can't have just a few people for that to happen. It ran down the streets. That's how many people were destroyed by the Romans during the Jewish wars that, they, that Josephus called the Jewish wars. So these people say there couldn't have been that many people. It's exaggerated. They didn't follow him. There weren't that many. However, when, how can you deny the fact that an exact, almost exact number of 5,000 men was recorded? And that's only the men. There were also women and children that were not included in those numbers. So we're talking a great number that were fed at that time. Folks, I'm trying to show us that the disciples must have been in constant awe of Jesus considering the multitudes that came together to see him and hear him speak. That was a time when only kings or other important persons could command that kind of attention and not an itinerant preacher like Jesus. Something drew those huge crowds. Some power told them, this is special. This is not your everyday event for them to want to follow him, especially in such great numbers. And bear in mind that not only was he teaching them, but demons were being cast out of the demon-possessed. Lepers were being healed. The blind were receiving their sight. And all forms of illnesses were being healed. That they have reason then to consider Jesus as more than just an average, normal man. I'm quoting out of only one or mainly one of the Gospels so that I don't duplicate the references to the crowds that came out to hear him. That's why I've been sticking mainly to Mark. Nevertheless, here are some of the accounts of the crowds that he attracted. And this one is Mark 1, verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Now remember, this is Jesus. He's not an official. 
He's not an official rabbi. He's not a scribe. He's not one of the people in command there. He's not a king. Well, he is a king, but they didn't recognize him as a king. And they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished. Who is this? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So they already saw, they said, this an ordinary man, they're astonished. How, how can he be so wise? How can there be so much wisdom coming out of this man? Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have you to do with you? What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A demon is verifying that Jesus is the Son of God. What are the scribes and all of the other people in the temple trying to do? Find fault with him. Find a way to kill him. Find a way to destroy him, to get rid of him. And a demon yells out, you are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had, con- had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of the man. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. The word was passed out. It went out like wildfire everywhere. Have you heard of this man that was teaching in the synagogue? Have you heard of this man that heals the sick? Have you heard of this man that casts out demons? Have you heard of this man that can do all sorts of miracles throughout the whole region of Galilee? His fame grew immediately. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. So here's this woman laying there, with a fever that had rendered her unable to get up, unable to do anything. And yet he comes in and just takes her hand and helps her up. And she's well enough to go take care of them and serves them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. You know, I'm often, uh, 
often wonder, there were an awful lot of people possessed, possessed by demons at those times because he kept casting out demons all the time. Has that stopped? I wonder if that's what we're seeing today in so many crazy things that are happening around the world that we see every day. Are those still demons? Or was Satan put out of commission after Jesus went back to heaven so that there's no more demons down here? Now the demons are called depression and bipolar and all kinds of other things that are afflicting us around the world. I'm just wondering, I'm just saying, you know, this is just me, it's not biblical, but I'm just wondering, is it possible? Is it possible that there's still demons around the world causing havoc as we see it? And the whole city, not a part of it, the whole city was gathered together at the door, at the door of this place where he was. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him and they would give him honor and glory where the rest of the people were just standing around in awe, but didn't call him who he was, the son of the living God, the Holy One, as the demons did. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Jesus prayed a lot. He got together with the Father whenever he could and for as long as he needed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Where were you? But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns. Plural. Not one town. All the rest of the towns. That I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. You understand? There were a lot of demons. And he was casting out the demons. And again he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. Again, People spread the word. He's back. He's back. He said that house. Come on, let's go see him. Let's go hear him. Immediately, many, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. It was packed. There was no more room. They couldn't get in another one. Mark 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy them. Remember what the demons did when he was teaching in the synagogue 
and the demon-possessed man was there. And the demon said, you are the son of God. Now these guys, the Pharisees, they're part of the religious order there. And they're plotting to destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. They all heard. The word was spread. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. They, were, they wanted to be near him. They wanted to be by him. They wanted to surround him. How do we feel about that today? For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But the rest of them, what were they doing? Just chasing around? Just trying to destroy him? Trying to put him down? trying to find something wrong with what he was preaching, but the unclean spirits are yelling out, you are the son of God. So many things that Jesus did that the disciples were constantly in awe, and now when he was telling them that one of them was going to betray him, they were afraid. They didn't know if one of them might be the one. They didn't know what to do. How would we feel today if there was a possibility that we might be the one to betray our Lord and Savior, the one that calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light and changed our lives forever? How would we react to that? Would we be nondescript about Would we just, you know, it's, wow, he's a great man. He was a great teacher. He's a prophet. Wow. Yep, that's who I believe in. What are you doing for him? I believe in him. Isn't that enough? Didn't we say that we were something? Look it. He went to the cross for us. Yeah, but not because of what you did or who you are but because he has so much love for you and compassion and mercy and wanted to bless you and wanted to save you that he was willing to go to the cross. What are we willing to do? Just asking. Okay, I'm not pointing any fingers. Notice. Just asking. What are we willing to do? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Indeed, 
Who can this be? Who can this be that loves us so much? Well, today, we're going to attempt to remember what he did as we partake of communion. We want to go back and think he went to the cross. He drew people by the thousands before he went to the cross just because of who he was. So today, we get to remember that he did go to the cross, that he does love us, that he does cleanse us of sin, that we can confess our sins to him, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's who he is. Just close with this. A few years ago, there was a telethon that was held to raise funds for, I think it's KCES or KCOS, the uh, Christian station, Channel 38 here. That weekend, they raised something like $23,000 for the station to continue the work of propagating the Word of God in El Paso. A few weeks after, if I'm not mistaken, there was another telethon to raise funds to shelter and feed animals, cats and dogs and whatever other animals there were that needed help. Over $200,000 were collected that weekend. What's the message from the people in El Paso for those that believe and know of Jesus Christ? Which side are we on? Which side are you on? The one that gave to the 23,000 or the one that pushed to the over 200,000? 